0: When Pedro Menendez de Avila set off for Florida, his goal wasn't just to establish a Spanish colony. His intention was much more brutal. The rivalry between Menendez's Spain and the militaristic French had been brewing for generations. Within a few hundred years, they would be engaged in all-out war. But for now, they were racing to North America. After Ponce de Leon came, many Europeans found themselves on our shores, including many seeking religious freedom. Near present-day Jacksonville, a group of French Protestants, called the Huguenots, established a town that they called Fort Caroline. The Spanish believed they had some foothold in Florida, but now, these Protestants were setting up shop in their territory. The Catholic Spaniards would not let this stand, so they dispatched Pedro Menendez to handle it by any means necessary. And handle it, he did. Menendez had been racing to the state to try to beat a French captain also en route named Jean Ribault. They met in a brief conflict at sea, but both arrived to Florida safely. Ribault had aided in the successful settlement of Fort Caroline and now returned to keep the Huguenots there safe. Menendez landed a few miles south. When they saw land, it was August 28th. This, in the Catholic faith, is the feast day of St. Augustine of Hippo, an Algerian philosopher who is known as the patron saint of theologians. The land they arrived on would be named to honor him. Menendez claimed the land for Spain, supposedly held the first Catholic mass in the continental United States, and was named the first governor of Florida. The Huguenots knew they were in danger. They pushed towards taking out St. Augustine, but the vicious Spanish navy cut them off. In retaliation, knowing the French were weak, Menendez gathered his troops and marched to the French home base. It was a massacre. Dozens died, and their corpses were hung in trees. Fort Caroline was captured for the Spanish. When survivors from the naval attack came to the shores, Menendez had the Protestant Frenchmen executed. Whatever threat the Huguenots feared came true. Their development came and went in just a few years. Menendez strengthened his grip now, on the northeastern coast. Four hundred years later, near that town that Menendez established, a group of actors put on a show in decorative armor wielding false swords made up to represent not just the Spanish settlers but also the slain Huguenots. A trio of tenors step forward and sing a clear melody, a mournful acceptance of the French's fate. As they do, an actor in traditional Spanish garb steps forward. He embodies the city's founder, Menendez. He speaks, To think that tomorrow night, the young mouth through which such heavenly music pours will be full of blood. Ah, Alvarez, under those timeless stars upon the span of man's life is but a single clock beat. Doth it grow light in the east yet? Let the musician rest. I would address my thoughts to heaven now. Let me have the strength to do what must be done on the morrow, here at the River Matanzas." The river is, in fact, called the Matanzas Inlet. Matanzas, translated from Spanish to English, literally means killing or massacre. As Menendez departs the scene, the set transitions away from the riverbed. From backstage, a city appears. There is a well, wood buildings, a chapel, simple furnishing. There are citizens, soldiers, builders, workers, Spaniards. A miniature version of St. Augustine appears on stage in this amphitheater at the edge of the real St. Augustine. The year is 1965 and the play is Cross and Sword by Paul Green. I'm Nick DeLisandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Florida's official state play, Cross and Sword, and all of the amazing individuals involved in telling the story of our home. It's about Menendez and the founding of St. Augustine, but it's also about us and our untidy origins. All right. Imagine if you will. You're outside in the summer heat. The sun has taken its time to cross the horizon, and though the light is gone, the humid air remains. The atmosphere is so thick that it clings to your clothes, and in that darkness, you wait. The anticipation builds. You're here to see a show, but there's no curtain to raise. You're outside. The amphitheater is thick with silence, until… A crowd of people of all ages arrive on stage and fill the air. The harmonies drift over another, slowly, lazily, but with great intention. The swarm of lyrics build atop one another, and then, after they've all but encompassed the space, they fade. The narrator steps out. He is dressed in ratty clothes, a peasant, a bard, maybe, and he's here to welcome you. He says, We are met to commemorate the founding of St. Augustine here 400 years ago. With its beginning, the United States began. European civilization in this land was first planted here, 22 years before St. Walter Raleigh's Lost Colony at Roanoke, 42 years before the English settlement at Jamestown, and 55 years before the landing of the Pilgrims at Plymouth Rock. After a few more moments, a bell is rung in the distance. Hi, is this Mr. Rainer? Rainer? Yes, yes, Rainer. Rainer. Hi, this is Nick D'Alessandro from Wait Five Minutes. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You said Rainer is how to pronounce your last name? Correct. I have a, I have a last name with an apostrophe in it for my Italian uh, ancestors, so <laughs> I get a lot of trouble with it, so I always like to ask. So so I just want to ask a little bit about your involvement. You, you directed the show for, uh, do you say, 11 productions of it?
1: Uh, Eleven Seasons,
0: yes. That is Tom Rayner. If you've spent any time attending performing arts in or around St. Augustine, you have no doubt witnessed the fruits of the labor of Tom and his wife, Jean. In September, the two were honored with the Order of La Florida Award, and recognition for their six decades of influence on the theater scene in St. Augustine. They are actors, directors, designers, writers, educators, and all-around artists. Over the course of their time in St. Augustine, they've written musicals about Florida history, constructed theaters for their home city, educated generations of students at Flagler College, and left an indelible mark. Back in the early 60s, their career was just beginning. It's 1964, and the city of St. Augustine was facing a massive anniversary, their quadricentennial. The city was founded in 1565, nearly 400 years previous, and the celebration had to be out of this world. Historic recreations were taking place all over the city, with cannons firing over the water and duelists staging fights in courtyards. St. Augustine has never been far from its own history, but with this major holiday sweeping its streets, it must have felt more present than usual. But nowhere could you find history more alive than on Anastasia Island, right across the bay from the main city, where a newly constructed amphitheater would be home to a brand new play, Cross and Sword. Just a few miles from the Atlantic, hundreds of actors and designers would gather to put on Florida's own symphonic drama. Before we move forward, let's talk about genre. What exactly is a symphonic drama? I literally have a degree in theater and though I can make an educated guess as to what that means, I was completely unclear when I first found out about this show. Why not? Why not? Why not? This is from Der Ring der Nibelugen, a four-part epic opera written by the famous composer Richard Wagner. It's technically four distinct operas, originally written to be performed over the course of four evenings, creating a total of 15 hours of grand musical spectacle. The music is marvelous and over the top, and tells of a fantastical parable about gods and mortals and magic. This is an opera, meaning there is singing throughout, but it's also a classical version of an opera in aesthetic and style. It is meant as a performance for a specific period to begin a festival. Cross and Sword shares a bit of that. It was performed in the summer every year and ran for 10 weeks, a celebration of those who flocked to the East Coast during the warm summer months. Other than that little similarity, these shows are completely different.
1: Were acquainted to with matters mathematical ironness and equations for the simple and about my normal theorem I'm teeming with a lot of news. With many tales facts about the swear of the hypotenuse.
0: This is the major general song from Pirates of Penzance. It is one of the single most iconic pieces in modern theater. This show is written by Arthur Sullivan and W.S. Gilbert, famously known for writing a handful of the most iconic comic operas in the Western canon. These are operas in that they are sung throughout, but they're more modern and more funny and goofy, and a little bit more influenced by musical theater. This show in particular is a little in the DNA of Cross and Sword, as it follows several groups of sailors and their comedic exploits and adventures, Aesthetically, we're closer, but Cross and Sword is much, much more serious, and has some actual dialogue in it. Okay, This is Socrate by Eric Satie, a French composer known for his unusual artistic quality and interest in more unique forms of theatre. He liked the avant-garde and would compose music that some would consider Dadaist. In the late 1910s, he composed a series of music compositions that, when placed with literature, would create a narrative about the ancient philosopher Socrates. It wasn't a musical with drama and songs flowing together, rather it was a drama. And then the characters would sing, but no narrative would be advanced in these moments. They were more about emotion, or the environment, and they would pass as quickly as they arrived. This is a symphonic drama, but it's still not quite the genre of symphonic drama that we're talking about. What we're talking about is a little bit of all three.
1: There there were those, of course, who... Uh, did not care for the genre uh, which is fine Uh, you can't please everybody
0: Um. cross and sword follows pedro menendez de aviles a spanish conquistador who in the mid-16th century sailed to florida and established the city of saint augustine and firmly put a foothold in florida for spain It covers a number of years in his life, but especially his time in Florida as he battles the French Huguenots, clashes with the Native Americans in the area, and eventually settles St. Augustine. All throughout are a rotating cast of Spaniards, Native Americans, French Huguenots, sailors, peasants, priests, nobles, everybody. A hurricane shakes the stage at one point with bending trees and crashing debris. A battle encapsulates the stage with cannon fire and real fireworks igniting the sky.
1: It used to wake up the people across the road. I mean, they all, they always knew when the finale of Cross and Sword was good, and they didn't go to bed until after it was over, because there was it would have wakened them out of their out of their slumber.
0: All of this was possible because of Cross and Sword's unique venue, a coastal outdoor amphitheater inside a state park. Here's what the lead character Menendez says about his mission to Florida. Quote. Heretofore, the explorers, and blessed be the memory of their bravery. To Florida have been that and no more explorers. They all failed. But this expedition will be different. We go to found a city there. To settle, permanently, there. Yay, settlers. Homemakers. Colonists. Homemakers, I said." Menendez goes on to express his goal for the Spaniards in Florida, to spread the gospel especially to the native americans in the area so it's a historical piece but it's also kind of a more fabricated more idealized version of the story it's not cookie cutter beautiful but it certainly is a more grand version of the narrative cross and sword was part of an extremely unusual and rare theatrical genre that swept across the country in the early to mid parts of the last decade During that time, the musical stylings of the aforementioned symphonic drama were combined with an influx of history-focused patriotism. In the years after World War II, before the disillusionment of Vietnam, America's proud spirit knew no bounds. One of the natural progressions for this was the symphonic outdoor drama. Theater companies began putting on productions of plays about their local area and would then perform said show in the area that the play is set. That genre would not exist without Paul Green. Paul Green was born in North Carolina in the early 20th century and throughout his career brought about the existence of the genre of theater that he was the lead contributor to. He grew up in North Carolina in the Jim Crow South. He lived near a historic black community in his part of the state and became interested in telling their history through theater. He wrote a play about what he saw in their community and called it In Abraham's Bosom. It played on Broadway and even won him a Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1927. He had a major interest in his home state, go figure, and wished to see more of its history dramatized for the stage. So, in 1937, he wrote a play called The Lost Colony. The Lost Colony was the first of his outdoor symphonic dramas. It was performed outside under a starlit sky in the middle of North Carolina. It tells the story of Roanoke, the famously doomed English settlement. It opened in 1937 and was a massive success. As a tourist attraction, it didn't get any better. During those summers, thousands would flock to the theater to witness North Carolina's origin story and feel connected to their folk heroes of yesteryear. This production still exists to this very day. You can catch a production every summer, and I intend to attend next year. But Green went on to write dozens more plays, including 14 other outdoor dramas. Most of his new dramas were similar to Lost Colony, intended to tell the history of a different state. So he wrote The Common Glory for Virginia, Faith of Our Fathers for Washington, D.C., The Stephen Foster Story for Kentucky, Trumpet in the Land for Ohio, and he even wrote one for Texas. That play is literally titled Texas. All around the United States, as the people of the country reestablished their own identity and place in the world, Paul Green was helping them find it. He was an early civil rights activist and an outspoken advocate for non white voices in his plays. Paul Green was writing historical plays with the intention of creating a better future. It's with all this in his resume that in the mid 60s, Paul Green came to Florida and penned our own historical drama, Cross and Sword. But according to Tom Rainer, Paul Green never stopped writing Cross and Sword.
1: Paul and I worked hand in glove for years and he would come down uh, during rehearsals. And <laughs> for years he was tweaking the script. Uh, Modifying it slightly, and he and I had a falling out over <laughs> mm-hmm. he was changing things. Uh, dress rehearsal, and well. I said, "No, Paul." I said, "We can't. we we open tomorrow night. We cannot introduce changes at this date." And uh, well, he got he got very incensed and uh, didn't talk to me for a couple of
0: years. Mm-hmm. The show was always changing. It was very much a living thing, a piece that shaped and reshaped in various different ways. Different actors would obviously come and go, including television actor Richard Boone. Different elements of the script would change beyond Mr. Green's additions. Sometimes whole extraneous chunks of the show would be removed simply to expedite the plot. The music would even change. There was original music written for the show by a composer named Isaac Van Vangrove, who often wrote music for a number of other shows by Paul Green. According to Mr. Rayner, the production staff would re-record the symphonic elements of the show every year. When they didn't re-record them, they would have to spend more money on essentially purchasing the rights to the music back. At a certain point, that just wasn't affordable anymore. So to compensate, the music started using this. This is La Arsienne Suite No. 1 by George Bizet. This particular version is performed by the Royal Stockholm Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Natalie Stutzman. The music is grand, a little militaristic, and precise in its movement. It wasn't written for this show, certainly, but it found its particular style again and successfully carried the plot when the symphonic element was needed. The show was growing and shifting and changing over and over again, and with each passing summer it got a little more special, a little more unique, a variation of its own themes. For 31 years, countless Floridians flocked to Anastasia Island, just across the infamous Matanzas River, and they would witness the story of our origins. Menendez would see his divine purpose, Menendez would arrive in Florida, Menendez would massacre the French, battle with the Native Americans. Bicker with his own people. And in this play, Menendez is not necessarily a hero. He's more a machine of history and all of its glorious highs and its perilous lows. Historical narrative so rarely chooses to remember things with an air of scrutiny, but Paul Green finds a way here. Menendez is not forgiven for his actions, and he himself knows the cruelty of his campaigns. When the music swells and the show ends, Cross and Sword leaves you with a question. Was it worth it? As the years went on, the show became less and less financially lucrative. It was pulling in less tourism and requiring too much to survive. Volunteers came and went, and the show continued to shift, but after three decades of seasonal performance, Cross and Sword could survive no more. The amphitheater itself was in desperate need of renovation, and the company ran out of cash. The state had been supporting it for a few years, but there was nothing left that could be done. There just wasn't enough money. In 1996, the show had its final season. I was born that same summer. I write about things that existed before my time every day, but when it ends so close to my own life, it feels a little more personal. At no point in my lifetime did the battles of Spanish sailors return to the amphitheater in St. Augustine. I found a program from that time, filled with all the faces of the productions gone by. Their headshots are delightfully dated, with chins rested on fists, eyes cast into the distance and overly melodramatic looks in their eye. This was likely a yearly tradition for many of them. Maybe they put off other work so they could return to Paul Green's play every single year. For Tom Rainer, the people were his favorite part of the job.
1: You know, everybody was there to do a job. As with in any good production, everybody has to pull together. And so there was good feeling of, you know, we're doing the job. We're, we rely on one another. We work together. We party together. The relationships... Um, Many of which, you know, last a lifetime.
0: Today, there is a Cross and Sword page on Facebook run by Tom's daughter. There's an archive of old photos, collected programs, people's Polaroid collections, headshots, anecdotes. There are comments from actors remembering their proudest moments, their fantastic fight choreography, or a dramatic dance, or a traumatic death. Some place quotes from the old show, their favorite lines. For at least a few, In one specific place, that story lives on, if only in their memory. They had a mission every year to tell this story well, Florida's official state play. Their mission was to be what Florida needed. Their job was to remember. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. This is episode 10 of our 12-episode season. Next episode is the penultimate episode, and we'll be talking about a very special art form, taxidermy. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review in the description below. I read every single one, and I'm always looking to hear what you have to say about this show. I'm currently working on season three. I am so, so, so excited. What I really want to hear is what you want to hear from this show. Your input really matters, and I would love to hear what you would love to hear. You can reach me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. While you're there, why not share the episode with your friends? I know you know someone who would love this show. All you have to do is share it, tweet it, post a picture, tell someone what you like about it. It would really mean the world to me. You can also send me an email at wfmpod at gmail.com, especially if you have an idea for a future episode. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find the titles in the description below, along with a link to more of their fantastic music. I would like to thank again Mr. Tom Rainer. He was such a delight to talk to, and I really hope I get to hear more about his fantastic legacy in St. Augustine very soon. I'll be back next Monday with another story. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself. Be good to others. And please, drink more water.